Welcome to another edition of the Inside Scoop. My name is Neil Crawford. I'm your host and also the founder of Anytime Soccer Training. If you're not familiar with the Inside Scoop, it's a podcast dedicated to helping parents learn about the soccer pathways that would be available to their child if they lived in another city around the world. And this show is brought to you in part by Anytime Soccer Training. Anytime Soccer Training was designed to solve a few problems. Number one, because the program has over 5,000 training videos that follows a logical step-by-step um, curriculum, and every video is 100% follow along, it empowers parents to help their children acquire technical skills at home. The average video is only five minutes. Again, it's 100% follow along, and it has a lot of breaks as well. But another problem it solves is um, before any time soccer training, most coaches were just sending random YouTube videos out to their teams and hoping that the kids were doing it. All coaches understood the importance of getting some extra touches at home, but they didn't have a program that was professionally done and 100% follow along and affordable. Well, with Anytime Soccer Training, a coach can assign homework, can create teams, they can see that the kids are doing it. And the best part is it's free to join and it's less than $5 per player per year for your team. So check out anytime-soccer.com to learn more about what we do. Join the mailing list and join the application for free. It's a lot of great free content. Now let's get on to the show. If you've been following this show, you know that I'm trying to provide some very niche um, content for parents and to a lesser extent coaches who are facing some very specific problems. As a matter of fact, my content or the content I'm producing may or may not resonate with many folks if you are not facing these problems. Just like a lot of the content that I read um, didn't resonate completely with me because I had a separate set of challenges that these that this content wasn't addressing. So what am I talking about? In Previous podcasts, I talked about their parents and then their parent trainers and some of the issues that we have overlap and some of them don't. Well, the content that's produced for parents um, gives you a lot of great admonishments on don't stress your kid out, focus on the process and not the results. You've heard this. Just the only thing you need to tell them is I love to watch them play and it's a whole list of things that we as parents need to do. Um, to put this stuff in its proper perspective, that information is useful, important, and helpful. But there's another uh, side of the coin that no one talked about, which is what, you know, which is almost like a field manual for parents who have, for whatever reason, they're rational people who are looking at this thing saying, if my child is going to compete in a skill-based sport, especially in North in a North American context where they're not getting a lot of enough free play and stuff, I got to help them acquire these skills at home. All right. And then there's another broad uh, swath of content that's directed towards coaches. Um, and that content is designed to further the coaching profession. Well, that content content is helpful, but again, that content is not designed for the rational person who is trying to help their child at home. And, and this is where we're going to get into this podcast, and that content can be confusing 
if you don't really appreciate who the target audience is. So in other words, there are criticisms that are often levied within coaching content that don't necessarily apply to the parent trainer, but the parent trainer may not realize it um, without a little bit of clarification. And that's what I'm trying to do. Now I'm speaking very vaguely and very general, but we're gonna get into the meat and potatoes as we go through this podcast. And as a reminder, this is a summary of some of the podcasts I've done with a little bit of added context, but I just wanted to try to do this, uh, summarize this stuff very succinctly into one show. Now, I, in a previous show, Let's start with where I recommend the parent trainer focus. And I'm going to breeze through these because I've talked to them at length in other shows. Uh, And then I may do follow-up conversation, follow-up shows on each individual one of these as well. So I've said, listen, as a parent, right, through a lot of trial and error and research, here are the areas I recommend you focus on. And this is definitely where I focus on with the understanding that I can't do everything. Number one is I try to maximize repetitions. I live with my child. My children are with me for the majority of the time. And I am a representation of them as the individual um, in in pushing them, pulling them until they reach self-actualization and can push and pull themselves. And the individual is in the best position to maximize their reps. I did a podcast where I explained that even in the most competitive situations, you're spending less than 3% with the team and 97% of of that remaining time is uh, not with the team. And how you utilize that 97% of the time will drive your development and drive your improvement. Okay. The next area that the parent is uniquely suited to help the child in is aerial control. Aerial control has been relegated to an area that coaches have deemed something that is best done at home or outside of team training. There are other higher order things within the curriculum, given a little bit of time to 3% that they need to focus on, and they just can't focus on aerial control. But this is an area where you can really help your child. And I use anytime soccer training because I also believe in technical variation, which we're going to talk about later. But three to five minutes of juggling, three to five minutes of loads of aerial control drills can really make a huge difference and improve their game. And it's an area that only the individual um, can do. And the parent is uniquely suited to help the individual Um, get over that hump. And I'll add one more thing. Once a child becomes an advanced uh, juggler, if you will, or can advance, can juggle at an advanced level, then practicing area control becomes even more efficient because the child now is able to get thousands of more touches in the same amount of time as a child who is not particularly good at area control. So it's almost like a, um, a snowball effect, if you will. The next area that the parent is uniquely suited to help the child is practicing their non-dominant foot. This is the best, one of the best gifts you can give your your child is the practicing the non-dominant foot. Now, I again, I use a technology to do that because I'm very sensitive to my children's feelings and I don't want to drive them crazy. And the technology 
just as a simple algorithm. If you do it with your right foot, it's next time it's going to ask you to do it with your left foot. There's nothing to talk about, but you are uniquely suited. And unfortunately, when there's loads of kids in a training environment, the coach doesn't have time to sit and watch and make sure that each child does this thing with their non-dominant foot. And even if they did, again, we go back to reps, they won't, they won't get enough repetitions to master these skills with their non-dominant foot. And um, even when children train on their own without parental uh, supervision, when they do that, they're not going to work on their non-dominant foot as much. It's just not a natural thing. The next area that the parent is uniquely suited, and I'm not going to teach, <laughs> I'm not going to give you parental advice on what specifically to do, but it, it's called, it's in the area of positively framing this stuff from a mental perspective, right? What do you say? How do you frame it? How do you frame a loss? Are you too low when, it's, when they lose? Are you too high when they win? How much value do you even place on your nine-year-old's game? How much do you talk about it? How do you frame sports? For me, I'm trying to frame this as a vehicle that we use to learn other life lessons. And then, by the way, I'm only using soccer for that. The other sports that they play, it's just a recreational activity that I hope they enjoy. Soccer, we're trying to get a little bit more out of it, but I, I, I try my best to frame it as an opportunity to teach you a process of self-improvement improvement in a way that doesn't overwhelm you or make you not enjoy the sport. But the reason I, and the reason that I choose the sport to teach some of these lessons is because you have to want the reward. You know, well, I teach you how to, the process of self-improvement to be a pianist if you don't want to play the piano, right? So it has to be something that you want to do, but I got to get the right balance. Okay. And then you are uniquely suited to help them choose the right training environments. Choose the adults who are going to pass on the information and instruction to them, right? So that's what I've done. I got two sons. They have different personalities. They're in different clubs and those clubs, the culture, the instruction fits their personality. And I've made that decision for them. I'm uniquely suited to help them to help evaluate that situation. And I'm constantly looking at their verbal and nonverbal cues to determine if we're going to stay in that environment only us we're the only ones that can make that decision for our children and hope that it works out all right now now that i've talked about the advantages maximizing the reps aerial control working on a non-dominant foot framing this stuff positively and mentally so that they get the life lessons that you want them to transfer into other areas of their life and choosing the right environment choosing the adults that, that are going to influence your child those are the areas that you should be focused on and, and, and where I think you should focus on. And some of the areas that I didn't name is the, the, the tournament, the team that they should be playing on. I don't mean the, the coaching, but I mean, oh, they should, you know, should they be in e NPL or ECNL or should you be spending a lot of time focused on, should they be playing futsal or should they be playing street soccer? Like all that stuff has its place. But, you know, again, if you get these areas right, um, a lot of that other stuff will end up taking care of itself. Where are the areas that I think the parent trainer, especially, are, is at a unique disadvantage? Well, motivating your child in a way that's similar to how you motivate an adult to do something or motivate or the coach or the other players around them motivate them. You are at a unique disadvantage to do this. So I cringe when I receive emails from parents 
and say, hey, I'm going to I'm going to have my child try any type of soccer training and I'm going to see if they enjoy it and if they if, see if they enjoy it. And if they enjoy it, then we'll continue to do it. The anytime soccer training um, is a program that helps your child uh, um, do a do what we call a delayed gratification activity. Repetitions are a delayed gratification activity. There is no, if I had um, some magic beans that made delayed gratification activities fun over the long haul, I would not be doing this podcast. I would be on my um, private beach somewhere in the Caribbean. It is what it is. So what we try to do is make the videos relatively short, make introduce one move at a time, interval base, music, timer, you know exactly what you're about to do, verbal um, instructions, all of that stuff. But at the end of the day, it's a delayed gratification activity. I see the same Facebook ads. I see the same commercials you guys do. And we all have a yellow ball and a glowing ball in our garage. After a while, the novelty run uh, wears out and it is what it is. So you are at a unique disadvantage to motivate them in that way. The way I motivate my children is say, hey, listen, I'm willing to meet you where you're at. You have to give me a certain amount of time, but how much time you give me is negotiable. And what you do is relatively negotiable. When you do it is relatively negotiable, but it is what it is. If you're going to give your coach three and four days a week, then you got to give me an hour a week or whatever that, that number is. All right. We are at a unique disadvantage to do anything that is game-like. That doesn't mean you don't do game-like activities. That just means we are at a disadvantage. It's easier to for a coach to execute game-like activities than it is for, it, for us. Number one, hopefully they have the knowledge to do it and experience to do it. And they definitely have access to the facilities and the kids. This is not to be mistaken for gamification, which we'll talk about maybe a little bit, but this is game-like, which I am going to actually define game-like in this podcast. That's actually the purpose of this whole podcast. So I need to speed it up a little bit so I can get to that. But that's the purpose of this podcast is to define game-like. But we are at a dis unique disadvantage to do that. We are at a unique disadvantage to teach the child any advanced concepts outside i mean while we're training them right so we are at a unique disadvantage to try to pitch try to get them the picture how they're going to envision this envision that and move this we are at a unique disadvantage to help them with that but we are actually at a, an advantage to talk about these concepts you know in the home uh, in a relaxed setting but we are at a unique disadvantage to do this in the training training environment but we can set up training to help them understand these concepts but i have just seen it time and time and time again parent frustrated kid crying because the parent is trying to get the kid to see some some advanced or execute some advanced concept that just twirls around in the parent's head based on the game the kid played last week just follow a process and this stuff will work itself out and while you're watching the game or while you're free playing or something, you can mention something here and there, but not in the stressful environment of a, of a training session. And finally, we are at a unique disadvantage to um, garner maximum effort from our children a maximum amount of time. It's just that, that is a fool's errand. I have learned that my role is to help them stay consistent, consistent and help them get extra touches. And I ask them to give me 
maximum effort 20% of the time. And I'll tell them when, hey, I really want you to push hard on this one. And the rest of the time, I'm asking for a healthy tempo, 80% um, maintenance work, because I know they're already in training environments where the coaches are asking them to do maximum amount of time. And a lot of the drills, for a lot of reasons, are already gamified to help them maximize it, maximize the effort. So for example, in their club environment, on the rare occasions they do figure eight drills, they're normally racing other kids. So they're working as a team to race the other kids. That's where they're going to get the maximum effort and they're going to they're going to enjoy it. But with me, we have well over 500 figure eight drills. So I can gamify it as much as I want. But after after you do it 10 times, I mean, it is what it is. So you just try to get through it. And I do measure what they do to some extent, trying to make sure they push themselves sometimes, but it's not a game in the way we may traditionally think about gamifying. All right. So those are the areas that I tell you to try to um, stay away from motivating your kid in, in, a, in an external way that we traditionally think about motivation, motivation, just forget about it. Doing anything that requires a lot of people and games, trying to do anything that's really advanced or trying to get them to do perform at a high level at each training session, you're just going to be frustrated. Just take a deep breath and just be happy with what they give you. Think about it like a um, aerobics instructor. instructor. The aerobics instructor will, will try to motivate the class, but they're just not going to get on every student to push it. Think aerobics instructor versus a, um, a boot camp instructor. All right. So moving around. Moving along. So now that we talked about that and we and we talked about the extra touches, the extra touches fall in in the category that we would call technical training, right? There's tactical training and then there's some other types of training, but technical training is skill. Typically with the ball, you have technical training, you know, without the ball, but for the purposes of this, it's technical training, which is the ability to manipulate and control the soccer ball. All right. Now, in a previous podcast, and I'm going to try to get to the game-like definitions quickly, in a previous podcast, I effectively came up with my own categories of technical training. Number one is unopposed technical training. This is a term that most of uh, you will be familiar with. That is you doing it by yourself in the air, no defense. You might be moving around cones, but it's unopposed technical training. Then is a term I've kind of created and borrowed and meshed together, which I call unopposed technical variation. Now, unopposed technical variation is extremely important to me and extremely important, and it's at a critical part of the Anytime Soccer Training Program. So not only do we do, say, inside-outside, but we're going to do inside-outside, one-touch, two-touch, three-touch, and then we're going to do it across um, the spectrum of skill areas. We're going to do inside-outside before we pass. We're going to do inside-outside in a 1v1 environment. We're going to do inside-outside before we finish. We're going to do inside-outside on the rebounder. We're going to do it in ball mastery. We're going to do it in dribbling. You name it, we're going to be doing it. So that's the technical variation. And then we're going to combine that inside-outside with L-behinds and V-pulls and blah, blah, blah. That's technical variation. Then we have collaborative technical training. So, I mean, again, I'm passing you the ball. I'm receiving the ball. I'm crossing the ball and you're finishing. All that stuff is, it requires us to work together in order to accomplish a particular 
goal. Now, there's a lot of um, collaborative technical training in the in the in the program, but again, uh, that's just another area of technical training that I try to uh, implement. And again, those three are not particularly opposed. Now, now you have the next one is semi-opposed technical training, right? So that's an example. I do this a lot where I'm offering some pressure against my um, sons, but not too much. That's also very, uh, very important. So it makes it fun for them. So I might play 1v1 against my nine-year-old, right? But I'm offering semi-opposition. Or again, I might want him to go to his right foot. So I'm cutting off his left foot and really forcing him to go uh, towards his right. That's semi-opposed. Then we have purely opposed. And that's where little brother and big brother are playing against each other and trying to take the ball, right? But none of these categories are what I would consider to be game-like. And this is a very important point that we have to remember. So oftentimes, you'll a coach will see you see you know, will comment on an unopposed technical drill and say, hey, you need to make that game-like. And there's two things there. Again, I don't think they're grappling with the problem that the parent has, number one. And number two, I think game-like has a has some components that I don't think they consider. And I want to drop them here and get people's opinion. After the opposed technical training, though, you do have game-like simulations. And I'm going to talk about those components later, but that's a controlled um, game environment that simulates a pattern or is a microcosm of a situation that will happen in a real game. So if you think about soccer, in many cases, people, some people will say soccer, you know, when you play 11 v 11, the reason that um, the way the curriculum works, it goes from like 3v3, 5v5, 7v7. Now, is most, even the 11v11 game is just a bunch of small games happening, right? You want to win your 1v1 battles and you want to create numerical advantages, right? So you want to create 3v2, 5v3, whatever. And it's a bunch of little small games happening, right, throughout the pitch. And you're trying to create create angles that also give you give your players options, especially when they're trying to create these numerical advantages, right? Throughout the entire pitch. And in actuality, and, and even if I didn't know where the goals were at, I should I should be able to look at how players are playing and probably get in a good idea of where they are on the pitch, even if I didn't know where the goals were. Well, when you do game-like simulations, you're basically use do you're replicating just small areas, um, small little games within the the broader game, right? And I think you guys know this, but I wanted to be exhaustive because again, I'm summarizing uh, previous shows, and I want to be exhaustive because we do have some new listeners. And then finally, you have the actual game, right? And there's you know there's no substitute to the real game, and that game can follow can be structured all the way up to a tournament down to just free play, right? All right. So where I think some of the confusion is and where I have to spend a lot of time talking to parents who train their kids is they often try to create game, game-like um, scenarios or they think that the unopposed work that they're doing is not as valuable as game-like scenarios. That's the first part of the confusion. Like they think 
doing something game-like is intrinsically better than not doing something game-like. So that's the first confusion. And the second confusion I see is even coaches for that matter. I don't think they, when they use, they use the word game-like too loosely and they use the word game-like to um, incorrectly describe technical variation or unopposed, I'm sorry, collaborative technical training or semi-opposed or opposed technical training. In other words, introducing opposition doesn't make something game-like. Being semi-opposed um, um, doesn't make something game-like in my opinion. Me playing 1v1 against my son is not a game-like training. It's just a semi-opposed or opposed technical training, right? And that that is important, but it's important to understand that's not game-like from my perspective. And that's not intrinsically better or worse. What's intrinsically better, in my opinion, is doing all the above. And that's pretty much my thesis, right? And that's what I'm trying to build with Anytime Soccer Training. And that's what I try to do with my children. And I just, in in doing all the above, I rationally looked at, okay, what is my son's clubs good um, good at doing? And where can I fit in, fill in the gaps? But when I try to fill in the gaps, people who don't have this context tend to criticize the gap filling part of it. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, no. This is just one part of an entire uh um, you know, development plan, right? And so what I want to do for our parent trainers out there is help them understand that if you just did one of these things, right? If you just did the unopposed technical training, if you just did the unopposed technical variation, if you just did collaborative training, if you just did semi-opposed, if you just did opposed, you're good if they're in a the club environment. And then I'll even go even further to say that what my what my kids, because I wanted to teach them some lessons in the um, game, in a, in a game-like environment, and I knew that as a parent, I was at a unique disadvantage, and I'm probably overthinking this a little bit. I'm a classic overthinker. I actually signed up to be their coach. So now all of those disadvantages I talked about as a parent, I mitigated them by being their coach. I had facilities. I had other kids who were motivated. I could create competitive environments and I could motivate them in a way that a coach did. But even then, I could only do that for a certain period of time because as they get older, they don't want, they don't need, for me anyways, they didn't want to listen to dad. So I did that when they were really young um, to create these game-like situations that I wanted to uh, create for them because there were some complex ideas that I wanted to teach them that I did not see them being taught at least at that age, in their club environments. All right, so now the grand finale is, what is, um, how do I define game-like and what are the components? Well, I talked about game-like as just a microcosm of patterns or game situations, right, in a game. And then there's obviously the game. And I think being game-like has one, two, six components that are, are essential to be ideally game-like. Now, you may not have all six components, and that's fine, but this is the framework I use. And then based on that framework, I will determine how game-like a drill is, all right? So the first component is there has to be a lesson in an idea in the coach's mind, right? Or the parent's mind, right? So if you are creating a game like 
drill. There's gotta be some reason you're doing this. There's gotta be some knowledge that you want the child to receive that you feel like they um, will, that the best way for them to get this knowledge and this idea is through a game-like scenario. And in many cases, they want them to be in a game-like scenario to receive this knowledge because some of the knowledge won't stick unless it's through a process of self-discovery, right? So I can talk to you until I'm blue in the face about why you should, you know, I'm just trying to make, I'm just going to make something up randomly. Uh, Shield the, shield the defender, seal the defender all before you receive the ball right in front of your final third or something as a strike. I can tell you that, tell you that, tell you that. But it's not until you have to actually do it that you're actually going to learn that. We can tell you till I'm blue in the face why you should get why and create space for yourself. But it's not until you actually do it over and over and make mistakes around it that it's going to start sticking. And I can create a game-like scenario that, that, effectively rewards you, which we're going to get into, or punishes you for not making these particular decisions. Now, sometimes I can let, I can create a game-like scenario where you derive your own conclusions, but I prefer to have, I mean, I don't think soccer is particularly complicated. So I normally, when I create these types of environments, I have an idea of some of the broad things I want them to learn, right? And then they will learn some other lessons that are unintentional, and that's good too. But I'm not one of these laissez-faire people that says, oh, I'm just going to create the game and the lessons the kids learn, they're just going to learn. No, I have some broad categories that I I want them to to take away. So it could be how do you, how do we press as a unit and what does that mean? And what, what are the risk of pressing as a unit? It could be, you know, again, playing wide, it could be, um, you know, playing, stretching the field wide or playing depth and with all these concepts that you will hear people talk about. If I'm in an environment, changing the point of attack, that's a very, very big one. So when I coached my sons in rec environment, that was a concept that I knew I wanted them to learn. And I knew that I couldn't really teach it to them in the way that I would like to teach them without being able to be on the field at the same time they were on the field and actually playing a game. That's actually one of the things I really liked about Rec. I could be on the field and go over these concepts. All right. So do you got to have some lesson or some idea, some, some reason you're doing it? The next thing you, next component is there has to be an objective. So the player must be trying to accomplish something, right? And then the way, and then there must be a measurable reward, right? So you have an objective and now how do you know if you're achieving that objective? So the objective could be to score a goal. The objective could be to get the ball wide. The objective could be to maintain possession for a certain amount of time. The objective could be to um, connect a certain amount of passes and the number of passes, the goals you score, getting the ball wide, those are all the rewards you receive, right? For achieving that objective. And then you can count them if that's what you want to do. There must be some opposition to be game like, right? Because of, if it's not opposition, then it's just a collaborative game. So if I if I set up a game where we're just passing and the goal, I'll give you a perfect example. Um, in my clinic, 
we again we use any time but i add my own variations we we do a passing and moving and so the kids are in a box but they, they're cones outside of the boxes right outside of the box so they have to do one or two touch pass and then run around the cone that's outside of the box and come back into the box and do one or two touch pass and everybody's doing it it might be eight or nine kids and three or four balls and it's just teaching them to getting them used to passing and moving right and also getting the person who's passing the ball used to passing the ball accurately and so the kids don't lose it. That's a collaborative technical exercise. To me, that's not a game-like exercise because again, it doesn't have that, it doesn't have the um, objective, right? So the objective is you, there's no competitive objective and there's no real reward and there's no opposition, right? So while that's very important, I would not describe that necessarily as a game-like drill. All right. Then we, uh, so we talked about opposition, right? There must be a decision that has to be made, right? So you, you should have, you should have access to more than one decision to achieve this objective and, uh, uh, and, tally up or or garner these rewards i can go left i can go right i can go in the middle right there's got to be a decision tree that if we were to to break it down you can make this decision or you can make this decision so while the drill i just talked about where they pass the ball and run around is a great warm-up and it doesn't really have a a decision-making component in the way i would that's similar to how you have to make a decision in the game in other words the kid could technically pass it to the same friend over and over and over and successfully complete this game without making any particular decisions there's obviously a basic level of decision but not a high enough order decision um, as i'm trying to define it here and i think most of you will appreciate and i'm sorry to ramble but this is just heavy stuff and it is what it is so and finally, to be game-like, there must be some consequence, right, to making the wrong decision or not being able to execute. This is very important. There must be a consequence to making the wrong decision or not being able to execute, right? So, for example, if the game is set up in a way that says um, your teammates are wide, and, and so we do a lot of scrimmages in the clinic where there's a perimeter where two team where a teammate can stay in wide areas and you can't you can't touch the ball once it goes to the teammate in the wide area well you have to be able to execute that pass to get it to your teammate and if you decide i'm going to pass it down the middle that's fine too but there's a consequence to that decision um if the other team can take the ball that to me is a game like um drill so I posted on Facebook, you know, give me an example of a game like drill. And I just wanted to see what people said. And one of our uh, friends and one of my friends and loyal Facebook contributors, Coach Mike from Arizona, he effectively said, and I hope I recite this correctly. He does a finishing drill where there's, say, 3v2 inside of the 18-yard box. And I hope I'm even getting that right. And then there are players at each of the four corners of the box and uh and each of those players have a ball and then you may even put some players on the very end of the in the corner areas of the goal where they can cross the ball in as well 
So if that if you do that, then that's going to be six players. It could be four to six players outside, and all those players have a ball, and there's a keeper, right? And so um, you start the game, the team on the uh, attack. Again, we're just going to say 3v2 or 5v2, 5v3 or whatever. They can start outside of the box. The defending team can't um, go into the box. I mean, the defending team can't leave the box. The scoring team has to score from inside the box, so therefore they can't shoot from outside the box. They dribble into the box, and they're doing their thing, and, they try, and the goal is try to score. And I'm going to try to use this framework here. So there, the, there are a lot of lessons to be learned, but let's just assume there's a lesson that Coach Mike has decided he wants his team to learn from there. Fair enough. The objective is to score, right? And you may say, hey, you got to do a couple of my, a, a certain amount of touches before you score. But the bottom line is the objective is to get the ball past the keeper into the net. The reward is actually scoring. Maybe you have to score a certain amount of, oh, so like, let's say if you have six balls, you're trying to see how many you can score out of six, right? The opposition is the opposing team. You are learning how to um, play. So I guess if you were talking about what you were learning, you're learning how to play um, how to defend um, when you have a numerical disadvantages and you learn how to attack when you have a numerical advantage and what does that look like, whatever. But you're still in a very small space, whatever, right? Um, so you have the reward, you have the opposition, we have the decision, right? So how you pass the ball, who you pass the ball, how you set yourself up, there is a decision there. And then there are consequences uh, for making the wrong decision and for your inability to execute. So I told um, Coach Mike that his drill passed my game-like framework, right? And I'm going to summarize by saying um, to create this type of drill as a parent, especially as a beginner, you, we are at a unique disadvantage, right? Because we don't have access to all the kids. We may not have access to all the equipment and we're not going to be able to do it regularly enough where people understand the rules and that kind of stuff. But having said that, we can do that if that's what we want to do. I have decided, I decided to do that in the context of coaching my children's rec teams, but you can knock yourself out um, however you want to create game-like scenarios. But if you decide to create game-like scenarios, I want you to remember this framework of there's a lesson I'm trying to teach. There's an objective to the game. There is a reward for um, achieving that objective. There's opposition there. There's a decision that needs to be made. And there are consequences for making the wrong decision or and are not being able to execute. So that's what I want you to remember. And then what I also want you to remember is listen to everyone's feedback, but put the criticism of like unopposed technical training, unopposed technical variation, put that into its proper context because people are not grappling with the problem that many parents are. And quite frankly, many of us are just trying to get our kid to get some extra touches at home without driving them crazy. I hope this made sense. I hope this was not too far in the weeds. I would love to hear your uh, feedback uh, on this particular show and how you guys think about it. And this is also a good, this is also going to be a segue into how I recommend organizing finishing drills, because 
the way I see finishing drills typically set up don't tap into these game-like components that I would that I would like to uh, see finishing drills um, do because I think finishing drills are inherently uh, uh, what's the best way to say finishing drills can inherently be converted to game-like scenarios if people apply this sort of framework unlike other type of technical drills. All right, this is Neil Crawford, um, the founder of Anytime Soccer Training. Check out anytime-soccer.com to learn more about what we do and let's get better together.